Welcome to the Lubber's Hole. You're listening to a Patrick O'Brien podcast where Ian and Mike talk and listen and debate our way through all 21 novels in the Aubrey Maturin series by Patrick O'Brien. We are, Mike, I guess most of the way, but not quite all the way through Fortune of War. Can you catch us up? Where did we get to last time? What might be in store for us this week? Sure, Ian. Well, last time, you remember, we're really all on land in Boston as Stephen had a real coup of intelligence, uh, kind of working with Diana and gathering together many of the things from Johnson, but realizing in that process, after overcoming a couple of French agents, that Johnson knows about him and Diana and their pending marriage, ta-da, or at least uh, their betrothal to one another, and is probably on the way back to kill them. So they're trying to quickly make their way out. They are holed up in Diana's room in Franchon's hotel, and they've sent for help from Jack. Jack has gone with the Harapas, rescued them, and put them aboard a hidey hole on one of uh, Mr. Harapas Sr.'s boats. They've since then gotten away, rowed out, and have just come aboard the Shannon, uh, captained by Jack's cousin, Captain Brooke. Now, we're on the Shannon. They just, Jack and Diana and Stephen just saw the Chesapeake's cutter run by them in the last episode. And sure enough, the Shannon has been standing in daily looking for an engagement with the Chesapeake, the last remaining frigate that, that really is in action in that area. And this week, Ian, I think we're going to see that engagement. I think we are. I think we're at one of those moments where the timeline of Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin is going to converge with the timeline of real history, in this case, the timeline of the War of 1812. And we're coming up to June the 1st, 1813. Yeah. And to help us wrap up the events of Fortune of War and look forward to what's coming in The Surgeon's Mate, we've got an interview with our old friend, Karen Milliard. But first, let's get back aboard HMS Shannon and find out what's happening. Ah, so we have the fictitious Jack Aubrey and the fictitious Stephen Maturin aboard the real-life factual HMS Shannon. And... We've constructed a world here. Patrick O'Brien's done a really nice job in finding a way, like he often does, to get his fictional characters into the world, not instead of, but alongside the real characters. So they've been welcomed aboard. As you said, Jack is the fictional cousin of Philip Brooke, the captain of the Shannon. And straight away, they're well provided for. They settle into the Shannon's routine. And they learn that Philip Brooke and the Shannon have been trying repeatedly to tempt, goad, plead with the Chesapeake to come out and meet them in ship-to-ship single combat. And the next day, which is going to be June the 1st, they're going to try for the final time. The water's low. If they run out of water, they need to head back up the coast to Halifax, to friendly Canadian waters. And this you get the sense here, Mike, this is a ship on tiptoes. They've been preparing for this moment. The whole Navy has been willing for this moment of a a return match, if you like, in the war against the American frigates for what feels like an age. Yeah, absolutely. And and it sounds, you know, as as Jack is first kind of taken around the ship by Captain Brooke, his cousin, they're seeing that this might be just the ship to do it. 
I mean, Brooke has got this incredibly well-trained crew. They've been together for years. Uh, interestingly, uh, Jack is so, uh, you know, he's very impressed by how Philip drills them. And he's, he's complimenting Philip on, on these techniques. And he's, Philip is kind of looking at him saying, well, Jack, I, I learned these all from you, <laughs> you know, when I was fairly young there. Mm. So some of these, Jack has said, you know, I'm going to use that again. And I kind of had forgotten that. And what we're seeing is a lot of new technology as well. Yeah. Philip Brooke and in history and in the book here, uh, as, as O'Brien has very, very meticulously brought that history forward has got all kinds of new sights on the cannons. He's got all kinds of marking on the decks using pendulums and compasses to allow them to fire accurately, right even in the midst of smoke. Um, O'Brien doesn't write about it, but we know in the real thing, they had really nice pieces used to accurately raise these cannons, level the cannons, put them back down at various distances Mm -hmm. to compensate for them. And we find out that they have this incredible zeal for beating an American ship in action. And to that end, you know, they learn aboard the Shannon that the last 24 prizes that the Shannon had come across during its duty in this long, long extended blockade of the Boston Harbor, they burnt them rather than uh, having their crew lose any men aboard prize crews sailing back to Halifax. They wanted to be at full capacity, you know, if they ever got a chance to meet one of these American frigates. Uh, They wanted to be able to take on a heavy American frigate and avenge the loss of the Royal Navy ships, which they're all feeling as keenly as everybody else that we talked to all the way in this book and the last. Absolutely. It's it's been two books in the making, this anxiety to, to get revenge on the American fleet. And by the way, while Jack is getting at home again in the world of the Navy and talking about new technology and, and guns with Brooke, Diana and Stephen are just having a little moment together. And Diana's turning to him and saying, Lord, Stephen, I'm just beginning to realize it. We have escaped. We have run clean away. And I don't know about you, Mike, but I'm thinking, are you sure? Oh, I wish you hadn't said that. Right. <laughs> I wish you hadn't grab, said that. Grab a balloon and reach wood. Yeah. <laughs> Let, let's just talk for a minute about this idea of technology, because I, I think it's been a bit of a theme for a lot of what O'Brien has written about, the, the contrast between the old world and the new. It even appeared in the Master and Commander movie. And after we'd had that great time with Gordon Lacko a couple of episodes ago, I was reminded of that, you know, with the Russell Crowe, Jack Aubrey sitting there saying... That's the future. What a fascinating modern age we live in. Very often, I think, in this book and in the other books, O'Brien invites us to consider, you know, Jack as looking backwards to an old age of tradition and permanence and conservatism with a small c, if you like. Right. And some of the rest of the Navy being more industrially minded and more modern and more based on technology. And Jack's got this instinctive distrust of innovation, perhaps with the exception of innovations brought along by his cousin, Brooke. And Brooke really represents this quite stern, quite vehement, but very objectively scientific Navy. That's probably the, the introduction of technology, right? We're just at the beginning of the industrial revolution. 
Right, right. I mean, I'm, I'm jumping ahead here a little bit, but they're about to have a conversation in a little while between Stephen and Philip and Jack about the Americans using a steamship and a steamship with a long cannon and this idea that says, gosh, you know, you don't have to worry about the wind. You don't have to worry about the tide. This thing can go anywhere, turn anywhere. So you really have this, you know, the old immemorial custom of the service where nothing ever changes. And this <laughs> idea that says, hey, look, we can become a lot more effective with this new technology. And, and I think as you, as you say, and no spoilers here, but it's been a theme all the way through and will continue to be a theme in O'Brien's work here. And not only the, the new technology, but new people <laughs> and the admiralty and the formation thereof. And new government, and in this case, new enemies as well. Rather than fighting the French, we're fighting the Americans. Yeah, very good. Well, but it's interesting. You know, it reminds me hearing these conversations with the, you know, the old and the new in Game of Thrones. We kept running across this: the old gods and the new, and a little bit of the mythology behind that. In the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros, the dominant religion is the Faith of the Seven first brought to its shores by the Andal some 6,000 years ago. But there are some who still keep to the old way, worshipping the faceless gods of the children of the forest and the first men. The old gods are countless, nameless spirits of nature. In ancient times, the children of the forest carved faces in the trunks of the weirwood trees, which became sacred symbols of their faith. In time, the first men adopted the children's gods as their own. Meanwhile, across the narrow sea, a new religion was born in the hills of Andalos. According to legend, the god of seven revealed itself to the Andals, and the invasion of Westeros followed soon after. The Andals sailed across the sea on ships armed with weapons of steel. The invaders destroyed most of the weirwoods in the southern lands, in time, the faith of the Seven spread like wildfire throughout the land. Still, in the north, where descendants of the first men dwell, worship of the old gods continues to this day, and the sacred faces of the weirwood trees keep close watch over the faithful. You get this in different places here, where we have this old and the new, the romantic and the enlightenment. You know, I kind of wonder how that plays out as we go forward here. Yeah, well, I mean, if we take the Game of Thrones, it's going to play out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with lots of stabbing and burning and disemboweling and fornication and dragons. But well, I have a feeling yeah. that that's not what O'Brien has in mind for us here. Well, again, we pit the, the big dragons of old against the giant crossbows of the new, <laughs> the old Navy and the new Navy. Clearly, O'Brien is not going quite in that direction, to your point. <laughs> Isn't there a series that uh, contains Her Majesty's Dragon with the Royal Navy and a dragon involved? I've, I've got one on my shelf somewhere that I never have read yet that, that is back to this time, back to the Napoleonic Wars and the Royal Navy and dragons. Novels of fantasy and alternate history reimagining the epic events of the Napoleonic Wars with an air force, an air force of dragons manned by crews of aviators. Yeah, that's it. Her Majesty's Dragon is the first one, and there oh, are nine novels none of which I've read yet, <laughs> several of which I own. It kind of reminds me, if you go back to the beginnings of sort of technology-based fantasy, maybe one of the early ones was Frankenstein. Ooh. I'm pretty sure Mary Shelley published Frankenstein or wrote it in 18-something, 1818. Right. 
So we're just at the beginning of that era when people start to speculate about man's ability to really manipulate the environment and man's ability to use technology. So anyway, maybe we're reaching a bit far with this, but we're at the point here in the story where we've got Jack and history, and as you say, Mike, the immemorial custom of the service looking backwards, and we've got Philip Brooke and the crew of the Shannon with technology and preparation and reason and thought. Is it going to be enough? Is is it going to be enough having both of those brains and both of those cultures aboard the Shannon to give them victory over the Chesapeake? Up until now, we would think the odds are probably not in their favor, as we say in another silly fantasy series, but who knows? <laughs> so Jack and Philip get plenty of time to discuss gunnery, and Jack gets plenty of time to admire the Shannon's crew's excellent standards of accuracy, timing of broadsides. He's really not flat, I think, by just how committed and well-prepared and fast and accurate the gunners are aboard the Shannon. So that's probably a strike on our side. And I think we also hear that Philip Brooks' leadership is a real presence in the ship, not quite the same filibustering, charismatic style of leadership that Jack Aubrey has, but there's real clear respect, I think, among the crew for Philip Brooke as their leader. He's managed to keep them going through 24 prizes sent away and burned rather than sent ashore. Right. All is not completely well, though. There's, there, there, I think there's a, one cultural token that we should just dwell on for a minute. And Stephen Maturin goes looking for it. He goes looking aboard the ship for a cup of coffee. And I think we've seen this before, that Whiggish modern Royal Navy ships are sometimes lacking in the article of coffee. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's a great point. <laughs> and one other aspect here, this old and the new, Jack uh, it wakes up, he's, he's now been on the Shannon, he's resting easy in his newfound freedom, and he's thinking about old Mr. Harapath and how he lost his nerve and, and what, what he, Jack, is going to be like when he gets older. And he's also thinking about Philip, to your point about old and new, and he admires yeah. Philip for parting ways with Nelson. You know, Nelson, who so much loved prize money. Yeah. Nelson, who would not use fighting men in the tops, but Philip wanted to have fighting men in his tops and even you know have new technology, new weapons up there, more rapid fire weapons to fire down amongst the enemy. And Jack thinks back, to seeing the Java lose by you know, that go straight at him tactics and thought, you know, maybe Nelson would have fought differently if he'd fought the American seaman who yeah. had new frigates, new wood, new technology, new tactics here. So here we are mm. with that old and with that new, but part of that old, as you say, is Stephen saying, God, where can I get an old fashioned cup of coffee instead of, he thinks, this thin, thin brew that a man might drink himself into a dropsy before the stuff raves his spirits even half a degree of the poor washy drops. O'Brien brings it home by, you know, he also has some Irish laborers that, you know, that they've taken aboard from an American private oh, here. This is great. And, they do not speak English. And of course, nobody on the ship can understand their native Gaelic language. And they all cry when the, the rooster on the ship crows, the cock crows in the morning, they all cry in their native language, hail to the virgin sun. They're all wondering what in the world's going on. And Stephen translates it for them and, and tells them that it's, it's something that they say every morning so that they might find grace if they meet a sudden death 
before the day ends. Ooh, a little bit of foreshadowing here. Yeah, a little worry. Yeah. Here. And then yeah. but I love talk about the immemorial custom of the service and the old and the new. The lieutenant, Brooks Lieutenant, hearing this says, Oh my gosh. He's very upset and says to Stephen, you know, you've got to tell them they have to save any Christian practices or precautions for Sunday because Sunday is when church is rigged. I can't be saying this on other days. (laughs) (laughs) Stephen, bless him. I mean, he's got some really telling insights here. The point about the coffee. I think we've got to take that. If the coffee's not up to it, the coffee's not up to it. Making the observation about the Irish crewmen, I think he's observing the different ways in which people are thinking about the action and thinking about um, the fate that's coming for them. He's got some good insights as well, I think, about Philip Brooke. And since neither Stephen nor Jack have got their instruments with them, we haven't got the music as an emotional outlet. So instead, we've got Stephen's diary. And Stephen's reflecting on Brooks and says, it appears that Brooke lives in an unusual state of tension as though he had had an unusually heavy private cross to bear and as though great concern with his guns and his ship helped him to do so. Stephen goes on and thinks, it would be interesting to meet Mrs. Brooke. The cross was there, whatever its nature, and obviously in a proud man, the only sign of it would be habitual reserve and tacit self-control that he had already remarked in Brooke. So, apart from the picking up of the religious metaphor and talking about having a cross to bear, (laughs) I think Stephen's, on the one hand, worrying about the personal consequences for Philip Brooke of being such a stoic and so reserved and so self-contained. But I think he also admires it a little bit because I think Stephen certainly sees himself as more of a stoic than somebody very sanguine like, uh, like Jack Aubrey. Right. And Mike, I'm starting to feel a bit worried. So there's an action coming, we think. Brooke's training and leadership of the crew is going to be a deciding factor. Brooke, on the other hand, has some tension in his character as Stephen's observing. We know that Jack admires gunnery. We know that Stephen admires his philosophy. But no one's touching wood. No one's reaching for a marlin spike or a belaying pin. They've got Diana aboard. Somebody's already labelled her as unlucky. I think it was Jack. Right. Mike, fate being tempted left, right, port and starboard here. (laughs) Well, you're, you're absolutely right. And it even gets a little bit worse, I think, too, because Stephen asked Captain Brooke if he would marry him and Diana when he's at leisure. And um, Brooke, who's never done this before, but immediately remembers his own wedding day and and his description here, when you talked about the cross to bear, you know, Brooke remembering his own wedding day, O'Brien writes, the desperate feeling of being caught on a lee shore or in a gale of wind, unable (laughs) to fall off, tides setting hard against him, anchors coming home. (laughs) Whoa, this is his marriage remembrance here, right? But he he, uh, puts that to one side and says he would be happy to do that, but first he needs to understand how he would do that, right? And he's he's, he's sort of uh, asking Jack about that, and we get this momentary humor here. There, uh, Jack's telling him, well, "Well, you know, the captain of a king's ship can do close on anything for a man except hang him without a court martial." So I'm I'm kind of wondering. Well, Brooks probably the way Brooks thinking about marriage is this equate with hanging him without a or I don't know. Let's say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But we do have this thing, wait a minute, Stephen and Diane are all, you know, all Brooke has to do is marry them now. Oh, this can't bode well. Something's got to interrupt this here, right? Yes. We're going to have marriage interrupters here, I think. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> and Brooks, Brooks got the makings of it ready. So Philip Brooke has read a note to Jack that he's going to send in to Captain Lawrence, asking Lawrence to come out in the Chesapeake and meet him. And Mike, as O'Brien often does, he's really taken chapter and verse from the real historical action that happened between the Shannon and the Chesapeake. Word for word, as far as I can tell, yes, the note that's read out in the book that Aubrey is invited to comment on and give some edits and some notes on is word for word the note that the real-life Philip Brooke wrote. And it sounds sort of vainglorious and a bit like nonsense chivalry to write to another captain and say, please come out offshore and try the fortune of our respective flags. And we've looked, I think, at some of the uh, the craving for honour that Jack and lots of the other captains have had all the way back to James Dillon and Lord Clonfort. And it's real. This was a real honour-based, yes. a real almost you might say fate and destiny driven coming together between the Shannon and the Chesapeake to say let's see how well we do when we're just together in single combat I I can't imagine very many of today's armed forces (laughs) inviting the enemy out for single combat but it's absolutely what they did I don't know whether the note was actually ever received by Lawrence or whether it was the final thing that motivated him in the in the fictional world we, I think I'll ask to believe that Captain Lawrence was motivated maybe to come out and find out what had happened to Aubrey and Maturin and Diana Villiers. I, I think a little bit of the history that I've read since in suggests that, in fact, like O'Brien writes it in the book, it never quite made its way to him that this an actual Captain Slocum in history was taking the note in and Lawrence was coming out and passed him so that Slocum never got to Lawrence yeah. before Lawrence came out. But wrote the letter absolutely intending it to have the effect that he had, which is to say, in honor bound, I ask you to come out and and try this fight. And I was amazed in the detail of the note, Ian, that he sort of says, look, I want to tell you, this is how many men I have. This is how many cannons I have. How many guns? Yeah, right. I've, I've sent the other ships away. I will... You know, it really was, look, this is it. Come come, take me just as I am. And let's, you know, we've got to do this for our countries. And I'm like, wow, that's something. And it's got right in the way of the nuptials between Stephen Maturin and Diana Villiers. So Diana, I think this is the first time Diana's been aboard a ship as the ship has cleared for action. Ooh. So <laughs> Diana has to go find a place in the four peak. She discovers that she's in a place that was formerly occupied by pigs. <laughs> So what does it say? The hands report the space is pretty salubrious now that the pigs are all gone, apart from the rats and the cockroaches. And the captain asks them to sprinkle it with eau de cologne. <laughs> Ooh. But even the eau de cologne is controversial, right? He's gone word for word with Philip Brooks' note, but I think we're not quite sure about the eau de cologne. Right, right. I mean, O'Brien comes back in, in the foreword to Surgeon's Mate, I believe, and says that he'd yeah. gotten a letter saying that eau de cologne was not in common usage in the UK until some years later after this. You know? And so, and, and O'Brien wanted to argue that, well, while that might not have been the case, you know, a captain who had been to France would probably have known about this. So, yeah. so he is keen to get that detail right. That's for sure. But yeah. as, as much as we know that we can't confirm that Aubrey Maturin or Villers were on board there, we don't see that. No. I think we'll we'll forgive ourselves a bit of eau de cologne and the presence of three fictional characters. Right. So the Chesapeake's coming out and Jack says, well, Philip, your prayers are answered. And Jack's referring to superstition and faith and spirituality. And Philip's really not sure. He says, yes, but was it right? 
to pray for such a thing. Right. Again, a little ominous. So this might be a good moment for us to beat to quarters and perhaps go and get a little refreshment and come back after the break. What do you think, Mike? Oh, I think that's a grand idea, Ian. Let's do that. Welcome back. I hope your quarters have been liberally sprinkled with eau de cologne (laughs) and that you're feeling comfortable so that we can go through the final phases of the final chapter of The Fortune of War. Well, we've got the Chesapeake is coming out. The Shannon is looking at them. Uh, The officers have made out their wills, written their last letters home. They've all exchanged them. Jack has done so with Philip. And and they take one more stroll around the deck. Philip asks Jack to inspect the guns with him. And interestingly, asks Jack if Jack has any suggestions. You know, Jack's been watching all their gunnery practice in the past. And we're back to this technology thing again, right? Jack says Philip had changed all of his guns so that they use flintlocks. And two of those had failed in the past day's gunnery exercise. And Jack suggests that they use slow match in addition to the flintlocks here. As Jack says, O'Brien writes, I believe you cannot afford to waste a single shot with the gentleman across the way, meaning Lawrence. Besides, it is the old way, and I like the old ways as well as the new. Here, here we have, again, that reminiscent Game of Thrones, the old gods and the new. And and I love that the gunnery captain approves, the lieutenant adds, I indeed, the fathers that begot us here. So we've got, you know, a little bit of that. Yeah, you know, when we're going into it, let's bring the old and the new together here, right? So we're all getting ready for action. One one of the steps that Philip Brooke takes to get ready for action is to go and pay his respects to Diana Villiers. And good news, Diana's not the limp, wet, seasick, prostrated figure that she was when she came aboard. And we hear it firsthand from Philip Brooke. He says, she's quite the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. Such grace, such spirit. I do not wonder at your friend's impatience, the kind of woman a man would be glad to fight for. (laughs) Now, contrast that with Stephen's speculation about what might be going on in in Brooke's domestic life. And we can see there's a contrast there. Yeah. And Jack, of course, uh, has to add a horse reference here for for me and my horsey things. Diana has the spirit of a thoroughbred. And moves like one too. And I think Diana's also coming into a realization of where she is and what's happening. She mentions to Stephen, she says, I spoke too soon, perhaps, when I said we had got clean away. I should have touched wood, should have clung to it. Mm. And they talk about their chances. And I'm noticing that Diana's got a bit of a foot in the old world of superstition as well. But I think she's very fatalistic. She's going to sit in the forepeak and she's going to take care of uh, any importunity on the part of anybody who comes looking for her. Right. Well, and and she, you know, she's telling Stephen that she believes that Johnson is on the Chesapeake, that that's why the Chesapeake is coming out. And she asked Stephen, you know, what what are the Americans going to do if they take the Shannon and they get captured? And Stephen, God love him. Oh, they'll hang us. (laughs) They'll hang us up, my dear, he replies. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. There's Stephen, like you said, the stoic, very matter of fact thing. But he, uh, he then pulls out a pocket pistol and shoots an advancing rat. And, and he gives Diana the set of pistols and suggests that she occupy her time during the battle by shooting the rats that are all over 
her cabin there where she's where she's been stowed away, right? And it's funny, Mike, we've talked a couple of times earlier in the book about the ground shifting under Stephen's feet and the ground shifting in his perception of and his love for Diana. But we get a little glimpse that maybe it's not all gone. She loves the thought. She reloads the pistol and she says, now I need not be afraid. And O'Brien says her eyes were as fierce and proud as the falcons. And he writes of Stephen, it was the first time since he reached America that he saw the woman he loved so desperately. And he walked aft with his mind unsettled. Whoa. I'm having just a little bit of a mini heart attack here, right? Oh my gosh, they're going into action. Now (laughs) now he sees the girl he loves again. It's like, oh no. Is this extra fatalistic, it's going to be okay, the tide turning in our direction? Or is this extra jeopardy, we've promised ourselves one more one piece of good fortune too many. Yeah. Is this going to be the last oh he sees of her? What, what's going to happen now? So Jack goes to see Stephen and uh, he's he's not asking for any fatalistic or spiritual help. He's asking for armor. Right. <laughs> well, he's not asking for. He goes he goes to get his arm bound. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. He gets his arm bound up over a kidney dish covering his heart. So he's getting himself set to be able to fight the battle with the strength that he's got in his one arm. Right. And I'm wondering, is this Stephen's way of saying, you know what, I'm going to bind your arm, but I'm going to stick this kidney dish underneath of it over top of your heart, you know, trying to protect his dear friend, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> and the rehabilitation of Diana goes on because in a moment before an action, Jack asks about Diana and passes on the news that Brooke was concerned about not being able to to do the man- marriage and hopes that it's going to be tomorrow. So it's at the, the front of Jack's mind, but also maybe is he tempting fate? Yeah, that's right. Ah, We've got a moment coming up now that's familiar to Jack Aubrey, which is the moment of calling the men aft and saying, there she is a couple of cables lengths away. It's time to go to action. And maybe in some of his previous actions, Jack would have given a bit of a stirring speech, not, not a fake speech, but he would have rallied the men a little bit. But Philip Brooke is much more matter of fact, much more pragmatic. And he says, the Americans over there, the English haven't forgotten the way to fight. They were going to show them today that they had not. He told them not to cheer. He gave them gunnery instructions instead. He said, don't try and dismast her, but fire directly into the deck. Kill the men and the ship is yours. This isn't very gallant. No. <laughs> this isn't very uh, chivalrous. This is, we're setting about this to win. Right. And and apparently... O'Brien has lifted this straight out of some of the biographies uh, about uh, Brooke, that this was, in fact, the speech, you know, kill the men and the ship is yours. Ah. And almost as soon as we've begun to think about it, Mike, we're in the action. This is Patrick O'Brien. We didn't get very much of a long buildup. We don't get a long drumbeat. We're cleared for action. The Chesapeake backs her topsail, and there we are. Rather than attempting to rake the Shannon stern, the Chesapeake comes up parallel, almost herself. Nelson-like, never mind maneuvers, go straight at them. Right. And the good news for the Shannon was that they got off their shots first. Yes. And when the smoke cleared, yeah, we see that the quarter deck of the Chesapeake was empty. The Shannon's initial shots had smashed the wheel, killed the helmsman, killed lots of the men on the quarter deck. And in the early stages of the action, we see that the Chesapeake's fore staysail was destroyed, so she couldn't any longer do anything other than head into wind. And as the Chesapeake luffs up and goes closer to the wind. She presents her quarter again to the Shannon, and the Shannon kind of rake her mercilessly. Yeah, this this thing is just some of the most incredible gunning. You know, is people have written about this that anybody's ever seen. They're just 
firing nonstop right at each other. And Brooke, with his his incredible gunnery, you know, it says that Jack is is thinking that he's getting off many more shots than Chesapeake. But it apparently all the accounts of this battle, this thing is just they're just pounding each other un- unbelievably, and these ships get entangled with one another because you know the one has lost way, they've come up close, and both sides have actually in the book. Brooke has ordered his boarding crew aboard. In in the real action, my understanding is both of them are now trying to board each other. Uh, but here, Brooke has taken a boarding crew aboard. Jack has followed them. It appears that you know that they don't see the Chesapeake's officers anywhere as they're fighting on the decks there. But then the ships, as O'Brien's writing this, are starting to break apart. There are no more boarders coming from the Shannon. And she's got a, a larger crew, and they're threatening to break out from below. O'Brien writes that Brooke gets badly wounded by these prisoners, prisoners who had surrendered, dropped their weapons as, yeah. as Brooke and his boarders have moved on, have now picked up their weapons and come up from behind them. And, and they describe Brooke getting hit here in real life. He's, uh, and, and I think here, there's this massive head wound, it's a cutlass cut through to the brain here. In, in the meantime, the grape from the Shannon, they're firing on the Chesapeake. They wipe out the Chesapeake's main top, who's been firing down on the Shannon's border, and they get a grating over the main hatchway uh, so that the, the crew can't come up from below, and the Chesapeake surrenders. And in, in uh, reading a little bit more of the history, too, apparently they busted up a couple holes stuck a couple of cannons filled with grape down into the below and everybody decided, yeah, I think I think we're done now. So here it is. They've they've now surrendered this huge ship to ship action over in like ten minutes. Pick it up, Ian, from O'Brien's telling. The English colours went up and the crew of the Shannon all cheered. Jack got Brooke to look back again. Brooke, on the presumably on the verge of consciousness, he's had a really severe head wound. And Jack says, Philip, look after. She's yours. She's yours. I give you joy of your victory. And it, maybe the moral of the story is in the last sentence of the book. This time, Brooke understood. He looked hard at the white ensign against the pure blue sky, the proof of his victory. He focused his dazed eyes. A sweet smile showed on his bloody face. And he said, very quietly. Thank you, Jack. So, Mike, we've got to the end of, I think, two straight books with Jack never once in command of a ship. Right. Except perhaps the smelly dinging in Boston Harbor. But despite that, we've had ship-to-ship actions. We've had shipwreck. We've had fire. We've had imprisonment. Jack and Stephen and Diana are all in the same place, all afloat on the same ship, as far as we can tell at the moment. They're all healthy. Diana's in the forepeak shooting rats, and Stephen's below, presumably taking care of some of the grisly butcher's bill from this action. But they're free. They're aboard a British ship that's taken their American arch rival. They're off the shore of Boston, and Shannon's water was already running pretty low, so... I guess where we must be headed to next is Halifax. Yeah, time to put a prize crew aboard the Chesapeake, get these two incredibly damaged ships uh, back seaworthy again, and head for Halifax. Nope. And we had this tantalizing Halifax ball that Karen had mentioned to us. 
Karen Milliard, in, in our first ever guest interview that would be coming up sometime yeah. pretty soon here. I'd love to know a little bit more about that as well. Well, I think I would. It's really great to have Karen back with us. Karen, welcome to the podcast again. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be back. As we've got into the very beginning of Surgeon's Mate, it's clear that there's going to be a big celebration. We've had this great historic victory of the Shannon over the Chesapeake. We've got British and Canadian society gathered in Halifax. So we're going to talk today about how that city and about how the Navy might have been celebrating. Mm -hmm. To to listen to O'Brien tell it, at, at least in the words of Diana and in the words of Stephen, Halifax doesn't get the greatest acclaim. You know, a little bit of a provincial town. Uh, Diana's even a little less <laughs> gracious in her comments. Uh, what, does O'Brien get this right here, or do Stephen and, and Diana get this right? Well, the truth is somewhere in between. I mean, it, it was a thriving community um, with you know thousands of people coming and going. There was, of course, the, the resident population, um, officers and men being posted at different times, Navy, Navy and Army, um, merchants coming and going. It was a very lively uh, place, and they were getting constant shipments of the most fashionable fabrics, the, the latest publications and music and all sorts of things. So it, it's it's true. It wasn't London or Bath or, or uh, you know, one of the, the more fashionable places in the world, or as she says, even Philadelphia. <laughs> um, but, it, <laughs> but there were fashionable people there. There were wealthy people there. There were titled people there, including some very, very richly dressed women who had very impressive jewels. And uh, so she's, she's being a little snobbish, not quite fair, not paying quite the justice that she should to the city of Halifax, in my opinion. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and when we were talking before, I, I, you mentioned that uh, there are some sources that give us some kind of quotes about how people were seen and how, how fashion was working at the time. Because it seems like people were thinking and talking already then about just how, how stylish and how glamorous some of these fashions were. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, this is from the book Jane Austen's Transatlantic Sister by Sheila Johnson Kindred. It's about mm -hmm. the wife of Charles Austen, of course, a naval officer, posted in Halifax for a time. And um, Lady Wentworth was uh, not only fashionable, she was also accused occasionally of extravagance. But she was a giver um, and arranger of um, wonderful entertainments. And um, there's a description in one case of her outfit. She's described as being, well, Mrs. Wentworth stood first in fashion and magnificence. Her gown and petticoat of sylvan tissue trimmed with Italian flowers and the finest blonde lace a train of four yards long, her hair and wrist ornamented with real diamonds. Now, this description dates from a couple of years prior to 1813, but I think it's worth quoting because it's so lavish. And it's clear that this was just, you know, th this was par for the course, that there were people who wanted to have fun. They wanted to show um, their status and they wanted to dress beautifully and they had brought their best jewels with them and so on. And why not? Huh. So even for Diana Villiers, that wouldn't have been an undershoot then. I think the, tr the train bit was very impressive. Right. 
Yeah. Well, trains were out of fashion, uh, I think, by 1813. I think. <laughs> but, um, but yes, they, even if they weren't, I mean, they used to pin them up for the dancing. So you, wow. would, have, you would have ball gowns with trains. But uh, yes, I mean, let's just say that Mrs. Wentworth, generally speaking, uh, did seem to be considered a little over the top at times. Um, shall I read that quotation of the poem? Oh, please, yes. A judge of the Halifax Vice Admiralty Court wrote a biting, in quote, I, I quote, a biting satirical poem titled The Inquisition that speaks to the gaiety foibles and moral misadventures of the Halifax upper class. Um, these, <laughs> so it's all about the planning of a ball. Cards fly by packs to folk of each degree, request the favor and the RSVP. What turkeys, chickens, pigs, and pigeons fell to grace the banquet, not the muse could tell. The dames arrive in muslins, gauzes, satins, in chariots, coaches, one horseshoes, and pattens. The gaudy banners flutter to the air. The silver sideboard groans with sumptuous fare. The fiddles crash, the merry tambours beat in notes responsive to the dancers' feet. So he seems to have a rather critical point of view um, <laughs> about, I, uh, it seems that he's critical of what he regards as the degree of decadence. But it does sound like pretty lavish parties were being given, but with yeah. the long winters in Canada, you can hardly blame them for wanting to have fun. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this brings up um, not only the poem and the decadence there and, and uh, mm -hmm. you know, hearing about long train but also is plays a role in o'brien's description too diana is so upset because you know she doesn't have the proper gown for this sort of yes. thing what's going on with gowns and fashions back then you kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier karen but what you know what would have been the style of the day and 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 how likely would it have been there in halifax as well the best fabrics could certainly be had the the merchants were in fact importing uh the best things. You can see the lists of, of their imports. They had advertisements in the newspapers um, saying we've just received a shipment of the finest muslins from India and silks and, and so on. Um, so the fabrics were certainly there. Usually women would buy the fabric and their, their chosen trim and have the dress. They would either make it themselves or a, a person of of say Lady Wentworth's status would have it made. There were, um, in spite of... <laughs> In spite of Diana's uh, snobbery, there, there were probably some excellent dressmakers in Halifax, and you could get a really superb gown made in, in a couple of days. So they really had everything available to them. And if there was something, you know, if they didn't think that they could get such and such, something that they wanted, they could ask a relative or a friend to buy it elsewhere and have it shipped to them, of course. They could they could have things, packages sent. I mean, it took a long time. Mm. But generally speaking, they were trying to keep up with the fashions as best they could. And they weren't that far behind, especially in the warmer months. You know, the ships, it, it, it took some time to cross the Atlantic, but they weren't that far behind. And they were getting publications and um, news. Of course, lots of letters were coming about the latest fashions. Some of the trim... It, it described in the merchant's listings um, clearly was the fashionable trim of the day. And um, mm. so there was incentive for everybody really to, to keep up with the Joneses as it were. 
or the Aubreys. <laughs> or the Aubreys, or, or, yeah. Or the Wentworths, yeah. Yes. Right, right. So I'd like to turn to the music for a second, if that's okay, Karen. I have a bit of an ulterior motive here because the theme music for our podcast is a waltz. Now, yes. I, I, I know it. It's known by a number of different names. I know it as Michael Turner's Waltz. We think that it's a derivation of an earlier piece from a set of German dancers by Mozart. And the Mozart version certainly would have made it contemporary with, with 1812, 1813. Oh, okay. But the Waltz itself isn't mentioned in the book, The Surgeon's Mate, although clearly they, they mentioned dancing the minuet. In the movie Emma, the 2020 recent movie Emma, there's a dance scene where they're dancing a waltz and they're actually dancing to Michael Turner's waltz. So how do we get from a world where, I think, as you mentioned in our, in our first chat with you, people don't touch each other and they wear gloves and we're all quite cautious and reserved to a world where the waltz becomes part of fashionable dancing again? Yes. Well, I'll just say it's not so much the germs. I think germs are on everybody's mind right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> But it, it was more a question of social propriety. What you did in public was very, very different from what you were allowed to do in private. And so the notion of public decorum was extremely central. And you just didn't touch each other in a quote-unquote intimate way on, in public. And so the gloves were part of that. And the whole waltz sort of controversy is about that too. Um, that you you just had not had such an intimate dance form on the ballroom floor in about 200 years. Wow. So this notion of touching another person's torso um, and dancing with that person for such a long time um, in such an intimate hold was just considered very scandalous by a lot of people. But it had been sort of creeping gradually into English society that the sort of the standard, or I should say a, a, a well-known story is that Lady Leven introduced the waltz to upper-class English society in London in around 1812. But there's actually evidence that, that many people in, in England were already acquainted with the waltz much earlier than that. There is a cartoon that was published, I believe, I think it was Southampton, depicting a, a ball in the, the port town of Southampton showing sailors dancing with the local girls, dancing the waltz. And of course, the, the cartoonists were pretty severe on waltz dancers, and it was all very exaggerated and very lewd. But the fact is that it was being done. The sailors had probably learned it overseas because it, it came to France via Austria and Germany, Mm-hmm. As it evolved from a folk dance into a couple's dance, it became fashionable there because people were a little less uptight. Um, <laughs> and then it seems pretty clear that naval officers, at least possibly army officers, took it overseas and uh, the sailors were learning it in, from other people in, in foreign countries and bringing it back uh, to England. And so mm. it did spread. It took a few years to become acceptable but it seems also that in, in terms of the Lady Leaven story, it actually seems that the waltz may have been done in London during the visit of the Russian emperor during the, oh, wow. the Napoleonic Wars. So that also predates 1812. It took time to become acceptable, but the upper classes, of course, didn't really answer to anybody else. So they could do what they wanted and they didn't care that much if anyone else thought it was lewd. 
the middle classes did not have that option. It was actually considered a kind of um, make or break element of a young woman's reputation. I've seen a letter from this period noting that a young debutante had been seen waltzing in London during her season. And it it was clear that the letter writers and and recipient um, regarded this as as a reputation breaker, that she was now unmarriageable. It was that extreme. But these were middle-class people. You know, the upper class, as I said, they, they could do whatever they wanted. So it's an interesting thing, but it, it did creep into respectability eventually. <laughs> well, we, but, we get a bit of respectability kind of commented on in the uh, description of the ball in Halifax, because there's the girl in the white dress who goes out and comes back in with grass stains all up behind yes, her. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, you know, like any smaller community, there um there is, people were all watching each other and, yeah. um, you know, there, sometimes people could be very severe upon that sort of yeah. thing. There's, yeah. you see some of that in, in um, contemporary accounts, letters and so on. Some of the, some of the women are extremely catty about other women who have bad reputations and so on. We don't know that the waltz was being done in Halifax at this time. It might have been. Yeah. Um, the dance you're referring to in the movie was a, Waltz country dance. The, the waltz was being used for country dances long before it yeah. became fashionable and acceptable as a, as a right. um, couple's dance, of course. And the tune that you are using and that is that is used in the film was a waltz country dance. Right. And I think you were telling us early on that there was a waltz country dance popular in Canada named after the Duke of Kent. He later oh, became okay. the father of Queen Victoria. Yep. And he was known for his passionate fondness for music and dancing. So there's a, a very lovely Canadian connection there, too. Okay. Nice. So if we're in Canada and we're with sailors, we're in prime waltz territory. That's what we're saying. Could be. Could be. Could ah. be. We don't know, but probably probably some of them knew it, yes. Whether nice. they dared to do it in a respectable port town is another question. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's funny, the, the other thing that Mike and I have, have talked about from time to time is how, yeah, when, when we talk about the, the code of gentlemanly conduct, the code of dueling, the code of you know, gentleman's reputation, and how it seems to be present in, in all parts of the world, in all cultures, that something has traveled with, with colonialization, hasn't it? People's accepted idea of manners, and yes. this sort of amalgam of British and French upper middle class manners has somehow just taken hold pretty much everywhere. Oh, absolutely. Um, there's, an, there's an advertisement in one of the Halifax newspapers of the period f- for a dancing master's school, mm-hmm. and he teaches manners and decorum yeah. um, as most of the dancing masters and dancing mistresses did. They actually taught you how to walk, how to stand, how to sit, how to get up, how to wear your hat, how to hold your fan, all these kinds of things. Um, they taught you how to you know, become a more elegant member of society. This was part of your social education. This was quite normal. So this, you see this kind of ad in multiple newspapers of the time in Canada. Um, there were a lot of ads for, for dancing lessons, for local, for local assemblies, the regular dance series, all these kinds of things. Canadians were dance crazy and it was actually so pervasive that an American who was writing a novel decades later, set in the War of 1812, actually remembered it and mentioned it, just commenting. And travelers 
coming through Canada in the Georgian period mentioned how particularly mad about dancing the Canadians were. So um, whether they were permanent Canadians at this point or people who were just passing through, dance was one of the most central activities all year round, actually. So it's... (laughs) We we had that reputation. I'm quite proud of that. Canadian had Canadians had that dance yeah, dance yeah, crazy yeah. reputation centuries ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, Carrie, you were even telling us about a dance on board a ship in January in Canada. Yes, that's yeah. That was a little bit later than than our heroes. Okay, I, I, I can only like, imagine it's pretty darn cold. Right. Yeah, January, incredibly cold. I mean, it's it gets so cold here that sometimes the harbor freezes. Yeah. So it's this is not to be taken lightly, this description. They stretch sails over the upper deck and they placed little stoves around so that um, everyone could stay warm. And of course, um, the gentlemen were a bit warmer because they had their, their shirt, waistcoat and woolen coats. Um, the ladies were expected to wear very filmy dresses. You could sneak an extra petticoat underneath, but there wasn't much else underneath your actual gown. Uh, you know, you'd have a you'd have a, a chemise petticoat. You'd have you might have had a, a corset or not, depending on your figure and your personal choice. Um, but yeah, it, <laughs> they managed to be quite comfortable, and apparently, it was considered a very elegant ball. And I've read descriptions of of balls on on board ship in other places, including Halifax. So it it was not at all uncommon, and um, the Navy and the Army were both very enthusiastic organizers of balls and dance events. They they loved to dance. There are many dances named after famous battles and commanders. There's a dance named after Captain Brooke, and uh, this is quite integrated into society that um, dancing was not a special thing that only certain people did. Most people went to the ball, even if you didn't necessarily dance, you might have been in the card room, but everybody went to the ball. It was the place to be. It's really something that has kind of slipped past the history books, unfortunately, but it it was absolutely the case. Wow. Well, let's just think about the the 21st century for a second. A lot of your work has been bringing people together to help them rediscover and and reenact and learn uh, the, the dancing and the kind of social milieu of, of the 19th century. How, how's that going? Have you got any sign of, of, of those events coming back to life again as COVID maybe eases down a little? Oh, well, it's kind of you to ask. Um, yeah, of course, I, I canceled the dance events right away because it was obvious that, you know, that was not going to happen. I am working on some ways of adapting some of my other events Mm-hmm. either to do them safely in person or to do them by Zoom or some platform like that. I'm working on a concert and uh, some other types of things. But I think for the most part, we're going to be waiting until there's a vaccine. Yeah. And there, there's no point in putting people at risk. I know everyone's hungry for these kinds of events. And yeah. um, I've talked to some of my regulars and, you know, we would all love to get back to it, but um, you, you can't, you can't put people at risk. It's, it just doesn't make any sense. So, yeah. you know, maybe my, my first big occasion <laughs> will be a masked ball <laughs> when we get back to it. But we'll, we'll just have to see. Yeah. We'll keep our fingers crossed. I think, you know, our, our, um, our health authorities here are doing a good job. They're being quite vigilant and people are on the whole being very good about masking and, and social distancing and things. So we just have to keep, 
keep the faith that people will continue to be responsible and think in terms of community. And that means, you know, the more, the more of us do that, we, the more quickly we can actually get back to our normal activities. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So if, if, if people want to keep their, their weather eye open and find out how things are going and find out as, as your activities start to come back to life, where, where can they find you on the internet, Karen? Oh, they should check my website for updates. It's janeaustendancing.ca. Mm-hmm. Make sure to spell Austin with an E. And um, we will post updates when we have them. Right now, there hasn't been, you know, anything for quite some time. But uh, we will, as I say, keep our fingers crossed. And there will be some things announced soon. At the very least, there will be some Zoom activities. And uh, with luck, we'll have a concert this fall in the open air. So uh, there will be things to look for. Oh, great. Good luck. Thank you very much. Karen, it, as always, it's such a delightful time to have you to take us back in history. You know, we were sitting there in, in March in front of that fire with you. And now here we are at the Halifax Ball. You know, it's, it's your interviews are always much commented on by listeners and other guests as well. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us again. Thank you so much. Thank you for asking me. It was delightful. And uh, just you're doing a wonderful thing. And I know it's raising a lot of people's spirits. So thank you so much for putting all this work into it. Oh, thank you. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> We're having a great time. Thanks again, Karen. So Mike, wasn't it great to spend time with Karen? It was. Gosh, our, our first interview and then to revisit. Yeah, you know, She's always just such a delight to have on the show. And it's great to bring it to life as well, isn't it? The social context and how people are behaving socially. We, I mean, we, we've been in the world, I think, in the second half of Fortune of War of... Jack and Stephen and Diana ashore in the world of, you know, polite manners. <laughs> yes, that's right. And to see how much this is, again, for somebody who had no access to Google, um, how rooted in the actual goings-on of the time in such detail this was. Yeah. And we, we've benefited that. I mean, if we look back all the way through Fortune of War, every time we've got closer to the War of 1812 and as we've got through all of the the frigate actions which have got closer and closer to the timelines of our actual heroes, it's been more and more convincingly anchored in what was going on in real life. We talked about how the letter from Brooke to the captain of the Chesapeake was pretty much word for word what was really written. And it's really nice. If you you care about that stuff, it's really nice to see how he wove the, the fictional and the real timelines together. Yes, love it. And meanwhile, Mike, I think it's also been a book about Stephen and Diana, as she's hove back into view, he having pretty much forsworn any hope of having a real relationship with her in a, in a slightly perverse, slightly undercut sort of way, maybe in typical O'Brien style, she's back on the scene and they're at least in some way a couple again. Well, it's 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 pretty amazing. I mean, this the way this thing ebbs and flows, not to use a nautical, <laughs> but but. Yeah, and yeah. and to have this, I, I really am hooked to find out where this is going to go now. You know, you've been through so many circumnavigations, and for me, it's been enough time that I get to kind of do it new again. So uh, I'm loving. It. And you don't get the sense at any point with O'Brien, I think, that the the characters are heading in one direction. I mean, we we all hope, I think, that Jack Aubrey's going to live long enough and stay stay out of trouble long enough right. <laughs> to make his way all the way up the captain's list. And that's probably a pretty easy trajectory to see. 
but there's been so much back and forth as the characters have moved along that the Stephen and Diana story, I think, is going to keep being a bit of a roller coaster. And if we care about the the pretend real character of Stephen, we think, oh, poor guy, there's going to be loads more turmoil <laughs> and heartache for him. But as a couple, as a couple, who knows what they might achieve still. No doubt. Well, and I think O'Brien, who does such a, a phenomenal job of planting all these little foreshadowing things and you know, just slightly mentioning things that we come back and find later, has talked about marriage so many times in so many different contexts, in so many different mm. ways. Uh, I think that really underscores your prediction there. <laughs> if we know anything, <laughs> we know, just like we used to say, that, you know, when the novel ends all happy, we can expect a turnaround to begin the next one. <laughs> Well, Mike, I think that leaves us as even more strongly motivated than we ever have been before to reach for the next volume off the shelf. Yes. Yeah. Uh, a little bit of The Surgeon's Mate. The Surgeon's Mate. wonder what he could mean by that. I wonder. Well, I think there's only one way to find out. What do you say, Mike, to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Ah, with all my heart. things like i should like i should heart that i no hang on <laughs> <laughs> there's your new outtake <laughs> no try try me again i've got i've got another one okay oh, very good. So, ask, question ian, me ian what do you say next week to a little bit more patrick o'brien yeah whatever <laughs> <laughs> oh man.